Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin at the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine an event in the history of the Royal Australian Navy. The Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales is supported in this series by the Royal Australian Navy, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. In this, the first of three episodes, we hear from historians who gathered for the 2019 King Hall Naval History Seminar, which discussed Australian Chiefs of Naval Staffs. Their collective work will be brought together in a future book entitled Australian Naval Leaders. The seminar was held at the Australian Defence Force Academy in June 2019. This episode deals with the first Chiefs of Naval Staffs who successively led the Royal Australian Navy until the commencement of World War II. The discussion is led by Commander Alastair Cooper and the panel consists of Rear Admiral James Goldrick, Ms Alison Hardigan, Commander Jeff McGinley, Dr Joe Strazek and Dr David Stevens. Good morning ladies and gentlemen, welcome. So I thought I might start out by asking you, David, um, about Creswell, who in many ways um, doesn't follow the mould in any way, shape or form that, that sub, um, subsequent Chiefs of Naval Staff did. I guess, could you start out by telling us a bit about him and how he came to be Chief of Naval Staff? Well, I think you've got to remember, of course, that he started it all. So he was setting the mould. Um, but of course, his situation was unique and um, the fact that he spent such a long time in the Navy in various, in, um, in various roles, and particularly as its chief. Um, he was an ex-Royal Navy officer who'd left early uh, as lieutenant um, due to the fact that his father had died and he'd lost his private allowance, because in those days you needed a private allowance to make a successful naval career. Uh, this is in the, the 18, um, 1880s. And he then came out to Australia to assist his uh, brother try and set up a, a past, as a pastoralist, and that didn't work too well. And um, subsequently, he was grabbed by one of his old shipmates, uh, Commander John Walcott, who was the um, senior naval officer or, and the, uh, in South Australia. And Cresel ended up being the uh, the first lieutenant of the Protector, the uh, gun, uh, the the. Uh, Armored, well, the unarmoured cruiser that um, the South Australians had. And from that time, once he'd, be, he'd um, joined that ship, his career was basically set on its path um, that eventually led to him being the commander of the Australian Navy. And part of that was just circumstances. When he um, joined Protector as the first lieutenant, he was unmarried. There wasn't much to do. He set himself to writing. And he started realising the problems that South Australia's defence had in terms of the fact that the, um, all the interest was in the army. Um, despite the fact, as far as he could see, the only possible threat to South Australia was from raiding cruisers. And that really got him started. And though that basic argument about why are we spending all our time and energy worrying about um, giving people a rifle and marching them around when really in Australia, um, first of all, he started with South Australia, then he moved to the rest of Australia in, in, in terms of his strategic thinking, um, the only real threat was going to be coming from sea, from the sea. And that basic um, fact was the core of his strategic thinking. 
and he spent a lot of time writing, getting published, um, being mentioned in Parliament, South Australian Parliament, just because of his arguments, um, which were which were bandied about. And I'm not saying he was necessarily successful, but he kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and such that he eventually he rose through the South Australian um, um, Defence Forces, spent time as the commander of the Queensland Naval Defence Forces, the Victorian Navy, and until eventually it became time when we uh, federated that he was chosen as the first director of the Commonwealth Naval Forces and from there eventually to the first naval member. Would it be fair to break Creswell's um, tenure up into maybe three parts? Um, being um, essentially arguing for the creation of the Navy, the, this, the form that that Navy would take um, with the first fleet unit and then the uh, time that he spent um, as First Naval Member during the First World War, so actually operating the Navy. Yeah, it's, um, you, can, you can do that. It's obviously a lot more complicated. Um, one of the things that you've got to remember about Creswell is that his ideas... He was very much a politician. He was very good at talking to the, uh, talking to the politicians, convincing them of, the, uh, of um, his ideas and how, use, how, how relevant they were. But that didn't mean he necessarily got it all correct all the time, particularly in those, t in those times in the early 20th century when there wasn't much money going around. Um, and naval defence tended to be a secondary thought because the, the prime idea was to get Australia um, ready um, for an invasion by ensuring our land defences were, were, were fine. And of course, Crads would always say, well, what's the point of that if you're going to lose your trade? Um, but the other thing was for, for Creswell, he, it was a time of um, obviously major technological changes and it was very hard to come up with a, a force structure that would work with not much money uh, and with things changing. And he, from sort of 1902 onwards, he was pushing out, you know, do we need um, 24 destroyers? or what sort of destroyers are these going to be? And of course a destroyer in those days wasn't the same as a destroyer in these days. And in fact one of the things he, he suggested was what was called a cruiser destroyer. And one of the, um, uh, I think most people tend to think that what he's trying to talk, uh, talk about is a combination of a cruiser and a destroyer. But what he was really talking about was like a torpedo boat destroyer, i.e. something that destroys cruisers. In, in the, that sense of the term, because that's what he saw as the major threat to Australia, raiding cruisers that would attack our trade. Um, and of course, he was still thinking along those lines in the, um, as we moved into the, um, you know, the, the second decade of the, of the 20th century, when um, he finally got some traction with people like um, uh, Andrew Fisher and, and um, uh, Deacon, our Prime Ministers, who actually started to support the building up of an Australian Navy. And in fact, when we get to 1909 and the uh, fleet unit decision, what we've got to remember there is it wasn't actually Creswell's idea. It was, it was Admiral Fisher, the first um, sea lord in um, the UK, uh, Royal Navy. It was his idea for the fleet unit for the Dominions, not Creswell's. Creswell would much rather have spent the money, or at least this is what he was saying at the time, on what he called the, um, the foundations of a navy, the bases, the infrastructure. That's what he wanted Australia to get into first and then move into the ships. But of course, 
with Fisher's fleet unit, we actually got the Navy, the fleet first rather than the, the naval infrastructure. And um, fortunately, however, the, uh, the, Brit uh, the, uh, the Royal Navy, when it um, you know, supported the, the plan for an Australian fleet unit, um, was also happy to give um, the Australian government or the Australian Navy, a new Australian Navy, all the infrastructure that already existed at Garden Island, etc., which obviously helped a lot in that we didn't have to build that up from scratch. I might turn now to Jeff McGinley, um, who looked after, or who's looking at uh, Admiral Grant, who was the first um, successor uh, in uh, to to Creswell, and and obviously the first Royal Navy officer to be uh, brought uh, from the UK to command the Royal Australian Navy. Jeff, I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the process for selecting Grant, a little bit about the officer uh, himself, and also what was what were the, the writing instructions, what problems did he face, uh, what issues did he need to address when he became uh, first naval member? Yeah, thank you, Alistair. Look, Admiral Grant, in many ways, is a sailor's sailor. He, he'd spent an entire naval career at sea, barely coming ashore. He'd specialised in the fastidious role of navigation, and it sort of showed. He'd come up, <coughs> excuse me, he commanded various battleships. He'd commanded, had been chief of staff of the first battle squadron at Jutland. He'd done all the things, he'd been torpedoed in Marlborough. He'd done all the sort of things you'd expect a seagoing officer to do, except learn how to command a Navy. And he was actually the third best candidate put forward by the Admiralty. Uh, the Admiralty had handpicked two other officers, Admirals Lambert and Halsley, who had had uh, just the right pedigree, had been serving in the Admiralty, had a previous experience with the Australian Navy. But Australia was just a tad parsimonious with our salary. We'd offered uh, um, only £3,000 salary, whereas the RN standard was three and a half. And also Sir Joseph Cook, the Navy Minister, perhaps had a rather informal interview style that made the officers a bit uncomfortable. So we actually missed out on the officers that, that the Admiralty wanted to send, and we got Grant instead. And he wasn't a natural court, um, choice. He was quite politically clumsy. Um, he was actually seeing demands upon his own Admiralty, saying that you better count this as equivalent to service in, in the real Admiralty. And Lord Jellicoe uh, was known to have spoken to the Australian Governor and referred to him as one of those second-tier RN officers that were bedeviling um, the RAN at this time. So not really a natural choice um, to lead a Navy, particularly not to be the first RN officer doing so. And he certainly faced some big problems. Uh, Organisationally, uh, the Navy of 1919 had been left behind um, after four years of war. The technological, tactical and organisational changes that had uh, occurred very rapidly in Britain and that the Australian ships in theatre had been exposed to hadn't filtered back to the Australian mainland. And um, Grant, when he did the Jellicoe tour, uh, when well, he first arrived in 1919, was quite aghast at what he found. And he tried to push through a bunch of changes really rapidly but that political clumsiness very quickly came to the fore, uh, suggesting a whole bunch of things that just weren't palatable to the government. Strength, incredibly, even to the point of threatening a de facto trade war with New Zealand <coughs> if they didn't give us the high quality Welsh coal or local coal that we needed to make our 
our ships run a bit more efficiently. Um, so he didn't really, straight away, he knew he had problems, but really struggled to do something with it. Strategically, he came into a very um, tense time. Uh, Australia of 1919 was led by the very xenophobic and fearful Prime Minister, Billy Hughes. I think the war really impacted him. And Billy Hughes was looking towards Japan and saw an immediate threat. Uh, they, they expected an imminent and overwhelming Japanese attack and Grant fully concurred with that. And um, interestingly, that they looked to two causes. One was Japanese militarism, but also... Um, the Australian white, the white Australian policy, and it was recognised by government and by Grant that this was uh, provoking the region. Uh, but Grant, in assessing the strategic environment, showed probably quite a disappointing maturity of understanding. He elevated the Japanese threat and their ability to act in the region and to fight a campaign and to appear on the Australian doorstep unannounced, discredited the impact of their commitments in China and Korea, that was quite the quagmire, or even the role that America could play in, the, in any sort of future Pacific conflict. So um, strategically a difficult time, but one that he wasn't really well postured for. Uh, clearly financials was a big issue for him. This was, again, the Australian nation was trying to revert back to a peacetime um, spending and he faced continual unannounced um, cuts slicing off his budget, often uh, cut upon cut um, each financial year. And, and then I suppose the final thing was the Australian nation being changed by war. I, I don't think it's, to exaggerate, suggests that there was a real fear of revolution or disruption to the society, and the government was much more focused upon financial aid to return soldiers via supporting a navy. The euphoria that had met the arrival of the Australian fleet in 1913 had very much evaporated by the time he took command in 1919. Thank you. I think maybe there are two themes emerging, at least in my head. The, the, the first is a conception, an Australian conception of what a Navy actually consisted of, how you funded it and you know, what did it look like. Um, and the second issue is... Uh, an a common idea or an accepted idea of what you needed in the person to lead that navy. Um, following Grant, there's a succession of three um, Royal Navy officers, one of whom um, is um, uh, Admiral Everett, um, and then uh, followed then by Hall Thompson, Napier, and Munro Kerr. So, Jeff, I'm just wondering if you could continue on. Um, but looking at those two particular ideas of the, um, the consistency of what we thought the Navy was going to be part of and, and the qualities that we looked for in an officer uh, to lead that Navy. Well, to take your second question first, I think we learnt our lesson with Everett. Uh, Everett was a far better choice and we actually gapped the position of CNS for several months until the Prime Minister could get um, over for the 1921 Imperial Conference and handpicked hand the officer. But Everett had done, Everett was a far better rounded officer. He'd done his sea time. He had done all the things you'd expect an officer to do, but he'd also had a much bright, broader exposure. He'd been a flag lieutenant, so he'd seen commanders up close, uh, senior commanders up close very early on. He'd 
twice commanded the Naval Signal School, so it experienced how to work in bureaucracy and how to work through political changes. But most importantly, after a period as captain of the Grand Fleet and setting up Scarpa Flow, no small challenge, he had then spent three and a half years in the Admiralty at, at, at war. And he'd served as the Naval Assistant to the First Sea Lord and then the Naval Secretary to the First Lord of the Admiralty. I think it's fair to say that we've had few Chiefs of, Chiefs of Naval Staff better prepared to understand the political elements uh, for what we're looking for in, in our senior officers. And it showed. He understood the politics. He understood the relationships with um, subordinates, peers, and political superiors far better. And things went much smoother. Uh, and I suppose the operating environment he was in was also had evolved as well. The Washington Treaties of 1921 and afterwards had, at least for a period, put the Japanese threat back, back in the box and, and brought a bit more perspective to it. And his job was to find the narrative that would define the future of the Australian Navy. And he was actually able to find a far more realistic narrative of an appropriately sized Navy focused on Imperial trade defence, working with the RN, that um, made sense in this context where, in theory, war had been rendered obsolete by treaty. So uh, Everett was definitely evolution to a far more effective leader, but also one who was dealing with a very different strategic environment by the time he'd taken up the job. James, I might ask you if you might look at the, the succeeding three admirals, um, or, or, or if, if you could just yes. comment on them. Uh, certainly, talking about the three Royal Navy admirals, um, and Graham Lunn, um, has been working on these to great effect and I think he's found the same sort of themes um, that Alice has identified but also the same sort of effort on the part of the Admiralty that's reflected in the selection of Admiral Everett. Hall Thompson, um, Napier and Munro Kerr all had backgrounds which were actually quite good to be Chiefs of the Australian Navy. To give an example, Hall Thompson had actually been naval advisor in New Zealand before the First World War. All of them had very diverse careers. All of them had significant administrative experience. Uh, all of them, the Admiralty does make provision to see that they're not going to be disadvantaged. All of them do seem to have been quite effective within what are very difficult circumstances, uh, politically and particularly financially. Um, Although the Australian Navy was getting the lion's share of the defence vote in the 1920s and 1930s um, and the Air Force and the Army were doing um, not well by comparison, in fact, the Australian Navy was not getting nearly enough money to do what it, what it, meanted, so, uh, what it was meant to do. So there were some very difficult decisions about retrenchment, uh, submarines which we'd acquired new construction uh, from the United Kingdom actually had to be given to the Royal Navy because we couldn't afford to run them. And again, that decision is a very difficult one to make, but it's made on the basis that, in fact, retaining a cruiser force not only was strategically important, but there's this view that, in fact, the cruiser force, by its natural ability to train people and put numbers through, was actually better as a core force for a future re-expansion of the Navy. Whereas trying to run submarines was not only really difficult and very expensive, but actually very difficult to generate uh, people. Um, 
do they have trouble about coming into Australia as Royal Navy officers with um, uh, not necessarily the right background? They do have some trouble, but all, again, because they're reasonably diverse background, and Hall Thompson particularly, um, but the others do well as well, all seem to adjust. Uh, and I think that's they have some advantages. One is everything is in Melbourne at the time, including the capital, until 1927. Um, they are socially inserted into the establishment very easily. Um, and I think the conversations and their presence make it easy for them to actually um, relate both to other bureaucrats and to the government. Uh, that, by the way, changes after 1927. It gets more difficult because defence remains in Melbourne, Parliament goes to Canberra. And, of course, if you're not a Victorian politician, that means there's almost no reason for you to go to Melbourne. Um, but in general, I think they, uh, they handle a difficult situation well. And I will say that they're all of them attuned to the idea of growing the Australian Navy. And a lot of the evidence is indirect rather than direct, but they are looking at the graduates of the Australian Naval College coming through to be the future leaders of the Australian Navy, and they're trying to map their careers that way. Uh, so, for example, Harold Farncombe is sent on the Imperial Defence course as a Lieutenant Commander for a course that's normally conducted by senior captains. Uh, you know, there's all this sort of clever stuff going on to really um, push people through. And what I would say is they're very happy with how well the Australian officers are doing uh, when assessed by the Royal Navy and trained by the Royal Navy and serving the Royal Navy, um, they're comfortable that um, what's coming through is a quali quality product. So in general, I think they handle it as well as could be expected. The officer who um, followed uh, that uh, group of, um, of First Naval members was um, the second Royal Australian Navy officer, um, Hyde. Um, is it fair to treat him as an exception, um, an Australian's exception, or isn't he, in fact, in, in many ways, a continuation of, of the Royal Navy officers who'd, who'd uh, come before him? He's both a continuation and a difference. Um, George Francis Hyde, who, in fact, was Francis, um, and that's what he took his knighthood as, uh, was a really interesting man. Uh, in some ways, he is what you could call the second father of the Australian Navy because he uh, was Chief of Naval Staff from 1931 to 1937 and really ensured that the foundations continued to be in place and were developed for an expanded Navy for future need. He's a very interesting man. He was, very, he was convinced that the Australian Navy's efficiency depended upon maintaining a close relationship with the Royal Navy. And he, in fact, confirmed the rule, which I think is very significant, that you could not be promoted in the Australian Navy unless you had served in the rank before with the Royal Navy on loan or exchange and been recommended for promotion according to Royal Navy standards. Not Australian standards, Royal Navy standards. And indeed, he would send back officers' confidential reports to the Admiralty to get sent back to the Admiral concerned to rewrite them if it said recommended for promotion in the Australian Navy. What he wanted to know was, you know, could you, um, could you make it by those standards? But he himself 
um, I think, was schizo both schizophrenic about the Royal Navy and also had wider perspectives. First off, he had served as Royal Navy officer, but he had only got into the Royal Navy by special transfer from the Royal Naval Reserve, sponsored, as far as I can figure, by a combination of Lord Charles Beresford and Admiral Fisher, which is a remarkable combination. combination. <laughs> um, but it's quite clear that he had always wanted to be a Royal Navy officer, but was from the wrong social background and had served as a merchant cadet in sail coming out to Australia, and I think he fell in love with the country. Um, and then as a Royal Navy officer, actually had a very hard, bad time because he wasn't from the right social background. So when the Australian Navy starts, there's his opportunity as an experienced destroyer officer to get an acting third stripe, and he always said he was asked to join the Australian Navy. He repeatedly served with the Royal Navy. He attracted very high opinions in general from people like Admiral Jellicoe, and his career was prepared all along uh, from the time, really, he's a commander, that he is going to be if he keeps doing as well as he is. And he's given exchange command of uh, the Royal Navy's biggest and most modern cruiser at the time, which also was going to be its first equipped with uh, a catapult uh, for scouting aircraft. He was given an exchange appointment as a battle squadron commander. In fact, I think he's the only person ever to have served on exchange at flag rank and seagoing and within the limits was well prepared. He also had another perspective which I think is really interesting and he's on record. He looked to America strategically as much as he did to Britain and he's actually saying in the 1920s that uh, Singapore would be a really good base for the US Navy in the event of a Pacific War. That's one of the reasons we should be supporting the development of the base. And it's very interesting, I can trace back, he makes his serving in Queenstown with the American destroyer flotillas in 1917-18 and he makes friends with the Americans. And again, I think there's that element of social outlook. You know, he found a, he found a, a uh, compatibility with the American officers in ways that I'm not sure he found with the average Royal Navy officer. But was he the right person? Um, he was very much, and I think it's inevitable for his background, the man alone. And I think the difficulties of being isolated, particularly once uh, Parliament had moved. Um, he also, and this is an important point, he'd suffered from uh, cancer of, uh, of the tongue um, as Chief of Naval Staff and was quite sick for some months. Um, they were able to fix it, but I think by some horrendous surgery and, radio and radiotherapy, which actually made it impossible for him afterwards, I think, to speak in public. <laughs> so it accentuates, I think, this solitude and he did have a lot of difficulties with both politicians and the people around him which I think were because he's so much the man alone were as much his fault as theirs so he didn't get on well with the squadron commanders he certainly uh, the last minister for defense Archdale Parkhill effectively I think they're not on speaking terms mm -hmm. by the end of his time so I think he had his limitations but my view is he was very firmly a Royal Australian Navy officer and that was his outlook. But what I'd just like to finish off is I don't think we're comfortable with the way Australia's identity has evolved. And you could think of yourself as Australian in 1930 or 1920 in different ways in relation to the United Kingdom than we would in 1940 or 50 or 60 or indeed in 2019. Thank you.
Hyde was succeeded by um, three, another three uh, Royal Navy officers, uh, Colvin, um, Royal and, and Hamilton. Um, today, I think we're going to skip over Colvin um, uh, and um, just look at Royal and, and Hamilton. And here I'd like to, to bring in Alison and Joe. Um, Joe, you first. Um, chronologically, Royal came before Hamilton. Um, who was he? And and I'm I'm curious again about who, um, why he was selected, and the the fact that that series of three officers um, were not um, uh, officers who were um, just on promotion to to rear admiral as the, the ones who had preceded uh, Hyde were, but were ones who had far more significant experience um, uh, by the time they came to be the first naval member in Australia. Yeah. Um, Vice Admiral Royal came out in uh, about mid-1941 and prior to his coming to Australia he had served in the Admiralty. Uh, initially um, he was served as Secretary of the Naval Board and then he served as the fifth naval member where he was responsible for seeing the uh, reinvigoration, as it were, of the Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm. Um, in the 1920s, he served at the uh, British Embassy in Tokyo. So um, you've got a man here who is uh, a wide admin experience. He commanded a carrier at sea. He served as gunnery officer. So he's, so he's got wide sea service. But importantly also, he's, he's got a view of the region, which uh, would have acquired in Tokyo. So he would have seen the um, evolution, to use a, a word, of the relationship between Britain and Japan in the 20s, uh, the worsening relationship, and also the changing politics in Japan and the rise of uh, radical nationalism. So in many ways, um, well, yeah, he, was a, he was quite a good pick for the period. Now, when he, by the time he came out here, uh, the war in Europe had been raging for some time and the possibility of war in the Pacific was very much on everybody's radar screens. And his predecessor had been involved in a number of discussions and committee meetings in Singapore concerning the defence of the region. So a lot of that earlier strategic planning, the framework had been laid out there and this had involved also the Americans. But because of the political situation in America... Uh, America was viewed as an associated power. It wasn't an, considered to be an ally or a partner at that stage. Um, now, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, of course, those circumstances changed. But not only did those strategic circumstances changed, all those pre-war plans from 1941 effectively went out the window too because the Japanese just steamrolled um, the British, American, the Dutch and the Australians. Uh, and in very quick succession after Royal arrived, um, and of course the first two were before the uh, Japanese attack, you know, we lost Sydney, Parramatta, Perth, Yarra. So, that, so for a small navy that was a very big hit in ships and especially in personnel. Um, so, so Royal you know, is faced with these losses. He's then faced with a change in um, circumstances which probably no other Royal Navy officer who's come out as the uh, first naval member has faced, and that is that the, the Defence of Australia 
is placed in the hands of effectively the Americans. The Southwest Pacific Theatre is created, and that includes all of Australia. Uh, MacArthur takes command, and he brings in his own naval people. So that's initially Admiral Leary, and then Admiral Carpenter, who at one stage, I'm not sure whether it's right at the very start or after Royal gets uh, promoted, he's actually junior to Royal. But Royal, Royal doesn't... Uh, he's not interested in the fact that uh, Carpenter may be junior to him. He's, he accepts the role given to him by the Australian government. And in many ways, that role is reflective of the roles of the Chief of Navies today, which is to raise, train and sustain the force. The operational application of that force was effectively in the hands of the Americans and the ships that were still allocated to the Admiralty. Um, and he, he was in that role effectively to the end of the war. He was extended in Australia. He was promoted while he's out here. And it was only in the, in the final stages of the war that he was um, relieved and returned back to the United Kingdom. Um, one of the uh, interesting things mentioned, in fact, uh, on his departure, the Navy Minister, uh, Mr Macon, paid tribute to Admiral Royal in the efforts he went to to meet ships returning from operational duties uh, when, when Australia was hit by the kamikazes uh, in the Philippines and had returned to, the, to a forward base. Royal travelled to meet the ship. Um, and it was that sort of... I think he was very much interested in the people as well. Yeah, um, there, was, there was another incident during the war years where he actually sent a signal back to the Admiralty um, telling them they got it wrong um, when uh, the Director of Naval Intelligence was reprimanded by the Admiralty uh, and the, uh, the British Admiralty sent a, the final paragraph on the... Uh, message that went along the lines, you know, we would expect that you kept informed of these things. Um, Royal went back and said, well, you know, the information was available to you, and by the way, you know, we're part of the Southwest Pacific Command, we're not part of an Admiralty Command. So, you know, he, he didn't mind uh, putting people you know, in their place, as it were. Um, he was also very, I think, uh, strategically aware, shortly after his arrival, he ordered the construction of, or arranged for the construction of um, ASDIC fitted motor launches for ASW work. Now, whilst they may not have been 100% suitable, the problem was, of course, the shipyards in Australia. They were already at capacity. The only yards available were small yards, which were, you know, had built trawlers or, or worked in wood. So these are the craft he ordered. Um, as the Chief of Navy, he received on a daily basis the uh, situation reports from the Combined Operational Intelligence Centre. And on those, he noticed uh, in April 42, American carriers had disappeared. So he, he asked the Chief of uh, uh, Deputy Chief of Navy to ask the Director of Plans to draw up a plan for an attack on Japan by three aircraft carriers. Um, shortly after that instruction went out, uh, the doodle raid occurred. So it clearly his own knowledge of um, carriers and, and the concept of carrier uh, aviation, etc., you know, came to play there. Um, unfortunately, whilst the original minute survives, the operational plan supposedly drawn up by the Director of Plans doesn't. 
And that would have been an interesting one just to see for as a um, you know, piece of historical curiosity. Thank you. Al, um, Admiral Sir Louis Hamilton. Uh, Admiral Hamilton. So he arrived in Australia with a mission. Um, Admiral Royal had had great difficulty um, uh, convincing the government to fund purchase of fleet units for the post-war Navy. He arrived um, with an incredible background of experience and connection back into the uh, Admiralty. He was the grandson of an Admiral and the son of an Admiral. Um, he was uh, very closely connected throughout his time um, to his mother, uh, who had great links into both the Admiralty and uh, the royal family. Uh, he connected um, often with various uh, people, particularly Captain Foley back in the, uh, the office in the Admiralty, uh, on a regular basis. Um, he's the only Chief of Navy, Naval Staff that was in command of two fleet units one during the First World War and one during the Second World War. So he had a, a very vast and deep uh, range of experience to bring, as well as his um, adeptness at uh, playing the political game, as it were. Uh, his mission in coming to Australia was to uh, convince the Australian government and uh, the Defence Department of the time uh, to develop blue water operations, the concept being to have one carrier uh, to attack and one to defend, and to build uh, the Australian Navy for the future around that minimum two-carrier concept. Okay. The next question I'd like to move on to, uh, after I read my notes. <laughs> Just looking at times. Okay. Um, is, is to look at uh, the, the achievements of, uh, of each of these officers. And so as I go through, uh, as we go through each, each panellist, if I could ask you to talk about what the long-term achievements uh, were uh, for the officer and, and maybe also to comment on, um, I think, their political adeptness in, in having achieved that. So, David, um, and just to give you a little bit of time to, to get it together, um, I, I think we, uh, could I ask you to talk for Creswell more than just the creation of the Royal Australian Navy, which is obviously the, the, the headline enduring achievement uh, for, for Creswell, but was there, was there more to it than that? Yeah, look, um, Creswell's achievements certainly um, are not just in creating a navy, but in actually getting the Australian politicians and also the public to start thinking about Australia as a maritime nation. And his legacy in many ways can be seen in what he produced in those early years um, from his time in the South Australian Navy and onwards in actually setting out the arguments of why we needed a navy, why we were a maritime nation, where our interests really lay. And he was very successful in that. And when you think about what happened as we move on into the uh, fleet unit's arrival in, in 1913, he'd actually set up the, the, the background for the, the, the fleet unit so it could arrive in an area and be used in a useful strategic manner. It wasn't just, it didn't just turn up 
the Naval Board at the time was thinking about how best to use it for in Australia's interests. Mm -hmm. And this was very much a strategic outlook that did not just include Australia, but included Australia as part of the empire and looking at the Pacific as a whole and the Indian Ocean. And, and he really pushed this, this, this idea that we were talking great distances in the Pacific, great distances around Australia. He'd often compare, you know, a fleet going from Malta to um, the UK and say, well, you know, we do that just going from one side of Australia to the other. Mm. That's the sort of thinking he tried to, to put in there. Um, he certainly did a lot to set up the Navy for the First World War and such that it was the most efficient, the most um, knowledgeable of the services when in entering the war. Not that he did it by himself. He appreciated that he couldn't do it by himself and um, got to remember in those days a very small fleet, a very small staff um, and um, he, in the end he required an assistant which he brought out from the, the UK, a, a Commander Thring, who was instrumental in putting Creswell's ideas into action and also um, doing things like creating an intelligence service and eventually um, ensuring that we were the, as I said, the best informed of the services at the start of the war. Thank you. Jeff, um, turning to Grant and Everett, what do you think their uh, enduring achievements might have been? Look, I think for Grant, it's the, is the reforms he made to the Naval Board. So uh, very early in his arrival, he um, split the role of, and re redefined the role. So he actually established the executive role of Chief of Naval Staff. So uh, up until that point, the Naval Board as a whole was responsible for naval operations and uh, that was not particularly effective. So he kept the Naval Board and he read, sort of tidy things up there, but the first Naval member, equal, first among equals of the uh, non-ministerial people on the board, but then he set up the position of Chief of Naval Staff who would have the executive command of the Navy on operations. Uh, and he also did some work to improve the naval staff that enabled him to do that operation. But, and in, in doing so, he actually implemented one of the things that Jellicoe recommended him to do, but also showed his um, political weakness in the way he went about this. So he got this through. He just ordered it to happen himself uh, without really great load of consultation. And that was his problem the whole way through is that he didn't really have his own plan. He had the Jellicoe plan and the Jellicoe plan was not really realistic. Uh, and so he could have achieved so much more, but because he was a slave to a plan written by uh, Lord Jellicoe, a plan that was totally disconnected from the realities in both Britain and Australia, uh, what he did achieve was far less, but he did have some other things like he established the hydrographic service. Uh, he did improve some standards in the fleet through um, better naval board inspections, and he actually got some um, pay rises through for the Navy personnel. Everett, by comparison, was a far less showy admiral and far more measured in what he tried to achieve. But as alluded to before, his really great achievement was that he provided a narrative for the Navy post the Washington Treaty changes that actually made sense. It was modest in design, but it was sufficiently um, inclusive that the government, the people, the Navy, the bureaucrats could all sign up to agree that yes, Imperial trade defence was important. We did need some heavy cruisers to do that. And he set the scene for the decision to the purchase of HMAS Australia in Canberra at a time when money was so incredibly short. So I think that really set the Navy up for the next 10, 
15 years at least. Thank you. James, could I ask you to uh, uh, summarise what you think the achievements of the next three officers were? I think the achievements of the... Um, four. Well, in fact, the four officers, I think the achievement is really to keep things going and to keep things together under extraordinary financial pressure. Um, the fact that they did sustain the core and efficient Australian Navy and a foundation for the future, I think, is an achievement of all of them. Um, and I don't think you can discount um, the difficulties they all faced. Um, we have no idea, I think, in the present day of the pressure and the extent of the reductions in funding, mm. uh, which were continuous really until about 1934. And even then, it only starts to scale up really slowly. I, I get back to this point that... Um, the fact that the Navy was getting more than the other services does not mean the Navy was getting enough. Um, and I think that's an important point. But I think they were, the way they were able to keep the core going, um, and I don't think any of them lost sight of the need for that, is a collective achievement of them all. As to adeptness, um, I think actually the three British officers were all politically quite adept. Um, Hyde less so, um, but I do think Hyde's circumstances, um, uh, and frankly, he's, um, you know, he was not as strongly tactically positioned as a Royal Navy officer on loan for a few years. Um, to some extent, because he was RAN, um, his position, I think, was a little weaker. Uh, but I think um, the separation of Parliament from the government, uh, from the administration, was a really critical difficulty. Uh, I think, in fact, that dogged the later Chiefs of Naval Staff for many years as well. Thank you. Joe, turning to Admiral Royal. Yeah. Um, ironic, I think uh, Royal's potentially greatest achievement was also probably the biggest failure, and that was the attempt to acquire an aircraft carrier towards the end of the war. Um, and that was uh, it potentially failed because he discussed the, the issue with Shedden who was the Secretary of the Department of Defence. Shedden has had developed his own strategic concepts which did not necessarily have um, carrier aviation at the fore. But by putting it on the table, it, you know, it was there and it was a concept that was subsequently built on by his successors. Um, and I think the other achievement would be, you could argue, is that up until World War II, the strategic concept of a threat to Australia had been cruiser raids, raids by enemy cruisers. Um, and so the RAM was oriented around that um, as, a, as a defence. Under uh, Royal, uh, he was appointed commander of South West Pacific Sea Frontiers, which was an anti-submarine oriented organisation. And I think that um, we pulled together an organisation which was involved the Air Force, which was effectively an anti-submarine organisation to defend seaborne trade. And the submarine was you know, really the, surf, the, the threat that was in developing. So it was exposing um, a whole raft of junior naval officers to working with the Air Force, uh, working on the, on the ASW problem and focusing on an ASW problem. Uh, and I think uh, if you look down through the 50s and 60s at the ships we got, you, you, there's that very heavy 
uh, ASW uh, for structure. Thank you. Al, um, what would you think uh, Admiral Hamilton's major achievements were? Um, he worked very quickly in the short time that he had. He was um, Chief of Naval Staff for two and a half years uh, under a great deal of, of pressure to um, for pave the way for Admiral Collins. Um, he had to do a lot of work in short order when a lot of decisions were being made very quickly at the end of the Second World War. Um, with uh, some very, very strong personalities, such as Shedden and the other two service chiefs, uh, vying for resources as uh, Australia was taking on the post-war footing. So uh, he managed to have a lot of resources, etc., put to the Navy at a time when there was uh, a lot of interest in the Air Force, the development of the Air Force and the Army, and quite a lot of infighting amongst the service chiefs as to who was going to man the, the uh, aircraft carriers should they be bought. Uh, so um, the Air Force was not keen on uh, demobilising to the extent that they were, uh, were looking at, and uh, the Air Force was positioning itself to take on that role from the Navy side. Now, um, it was quite a win on Hamilton's part to convince the government to uh, purchase these two cruisers. He also positioned them into... Carriers. Carriers sorry. My apologies. <laughs> Thinking too many things at once. Um, so he also did a lot of work uh, for the development of the um, RAN. His haul down uh, speech was more... His report was more about the uh, issues with morale <laughs> and the decline of the RAN um, personnel at the time than uh, necessarily about equipment, etc. He was quite concerned about um, making sure that the RAN was ready to take on um, a growth of the fleet air arm. Uh, but another thing that he did that was behind the scenes was the mentoring of Admiral Collins and the work that he did with um, Admiral Royal, etc., on ensuring that Collins was receiving the postings and the training required for him to step in and be ready to develop a fleet air arm. Thank you very much. Um, in thanking the panellists um, for this first session, um, I think it's um, interesting to reflect on, one, the challenge of trying to understand um, a, a national institution like the Royal Australian Navy over a, a, an almost a half century period and the changes that uh, were wrought and the challenges that were faced, but also to reflect on the difficulties of understanding you know, the individuals who served in this position in the context of the service that they, um, that they were running, but also the nation which that, uh, which, which that Navy served. And until you can actually start to integrate all of those, it becomes quite hard to assess the performance of the individuals. So I think it's a considerable challenge, um, which our panellists have done really well. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. And for more information on the Australian Naval History video and podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now.